Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, before we get started, just a quick reminder about the Other People app. It's free. It's the official app of this podcast. It's available for free wherever you get your apps. Go get the Other People app. Do that. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be waiting for you free of charge. You get the most recent 50 for free. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. Better yet, if you want to get access to everything, if you want to be able to stream the full archives of this program, nearly 400 episodes at your fingertips wherever you go, you can sign up for the Other People Premium subscription right there within the app. It's a great way to support the show. You can hear my conversations with literally hundreds of writers, including Cheryl Strayed, George Saunders, Sheila Hetty, Roxanne Gay, Edwidge Dantica, Tao Lin, David Shields, Heidi Julevitz, Ben Marcus. The list goes on. It's a great thing. The Other People app. Go get it. Okay, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is high quality content. This is a podcast presentation. How is it out there? How is it out there for you? I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. Uh, Joshua Moore is my guest. He's back. He's been on the program before. He's back again. Had a great time talking with Joshua. He's got a new novel out called All This Life, available from Soft Skull Press. It's garnering rave reviews. Hey, do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Get yourself some earbuds, get yourself some headphones, improve your situation. I got some mail here. A listener named Carlos writes, Dear Brad, I just listened to episode 207 with Molly Ringwald, and in it you read some mail from a guy named Bill who proposed a complaint about how he was frustrated that more writing wasn't talked about on the show as opposed to childhood traumas and past creative endeavors. I wanted to say, fuck that guy. Best Carlos. Thanks, Carlos. I don't remember that off the top of my head. That was uh, hundreds of episodes ago or almost 200 episodes ago, but I take you at your word. 
Uh, I'm with you, man. I like to talk about the other stuff. I don't understand how anybody could do 400 episodes of a podcast where all you do is talk about craft. This would have ended long ago were that the case for me. I couldn't do it. It would bore me. Not that craft discussion always bores me, but just how much can you really say? Can you really fill 400 episodes with that? Maybe somebody could, but it's not me. I like the other stuff. I'm interested in the people. The stories behind the stories. That should be the tagline for this show. Brad Listy, he gets the stories behind the stories. I like improvisation. I like the uh, potential for disaster, and I like the potential for uh, unexpected gold. I like to be surprised. I like the show to feel much more like a conversation than an interview. I think that's really uh, the nut of it. I was just talking to a friend. I was saying, you know, I'm the first. I'm the show's first listener. Every episode, I'm the first person to listen. And I genuinely uh, like the show. Every once in a while, there's an interview that's not as great as the others. But like the overwhelming majority of them, I really like. Otherwise, I wouldn't keep doing this. That's the truth. Like as a listener. As long as I can kind of block out the stupid things I say. A listener named Jeff in Nashville writes, Brad, hey man. Sure you're aware of this, but the David Foster Wallace pick, what's it called? The end of the tour, the end of the road, the end of the tour. Uh, the David Foster Wallace pick is totally on the level. I saw it here tonight in Nashville and thought of you. Plenty of Brad Listy sweet writerly despair pouring out. My girlfriend went from uninitiated with David Foster Wallace to afterwards buying infinite jest out in the lobby of the movie theater. A local bookstore was doing a promo. Oh man, didn't see that coming. Do I have to read it now too? I knew the movie would be good given the dynamics and material and the time period, but I don't feel weird or fanboyish to say it. It's a great film, even historically significant. It's a giant life raft, giant life raft sent out to all of us lost Gen X art artisty types. We live in a good world. Signed, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. I didn't, you know, I haven't seen the movie. I've got a newborn. I haven't gotten to the theater. I don't know if I'm gonna, I would like to. But it's hard to get to the movie theater. It was hard before the baby. Now it's doubly hard. But I'm going to try. Or else I'll watch it when it comes out uh, on Netflix or whatever. But I've heard good things. I heard that Jason Siegel gives a good performance. I read that book well before there was ever a movie deal and enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, I'm a huge David Foster Wallace fan, especially the nonfiction. And I know that might be uh, sacrilege to say to people who are like deep into Infinite Jest. But I love his nonfiction. I have not been able to get through... Uh, infinite jest on three tries i'm going to try again at some point i think it's a worthy thing to do i know there's so much uh, i mean uh, there's so clearly so much uh intelligence in that book and heart and soul it's you know it's just uh it's hard for me and I, I wouldn't normally make that effort multiple times for a book that didn't catch me but I, I you know i love his work and i love his uh i don't know i love his mind <laughs> I don't want to get too mushy about this, but you know what I'm saying. I wouldn't make that effort for just any author, but it feels like something I need to do in my life at some point. Uh, but I did read brief interviews with hideous men. I read Girl with the Curious Hair. And uh, I love the essays. And there's a, an audio book of Consider the Lobster. I think it's Consider the Lobster that David Foster Wallace reads himself, which I recommend to people all the time and have probably recommended on this show before. Totally worth it if you need an audio book. It's a sad story. Uh, 
his. I mean, there's a lot of uh, triumph, but man, that's a loss. A brain like that and a, a talent like that. So thanks again, Jeff. Thanks to everybody uh, for writing in. I appreciate it. I try to get to as many letters as I can here on the uh, program itself. If you want to, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Joshua Moore. He is back uh, again. I was going to say he's back for more, but I can't do that. <laughs> His latest novel is called All This Life. It's available now from Soft Skull. Uh, thrilled for him to see uh, the reception that this new novel has been getting, and I'm very pleased to have had the chance to sit down with him uh, here in the home studio. So here he is, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joshua Moore. I've certainly noticed that there's more chatter this week around launch, and that's cool. I mean, I feel like... And, and from my from my vantage point, I'm a, I'm the unreliable narrator here, right? Because I love all of these books that I've put out before, right? Um, but I have noticed that there's there's more chatter, um, and that's that's all that we're trying to do is we want to have the opportunity to compete in a very congested marketplace. So anything that can help, especially from an indie press perspective, where it always feels like a rigged game. Anyways, right? There's a very kind of like the have and the have nots mentality. Yeah. So whenever indie press books are, are you, you getting mean attention, versus, you mean versus the uh, bigs? Well, I mean they've got the money, yeah. right? And they can buy ads and they can do all these things that, from an indie press perspective, is impossible. I mean, in, in from indie presses really are a grassroots operation. You know, one book by one book, one reader by one reader. I mean, you, you kind of talked about the the slow burn of my career and. That's exactly how it's gone. Like one book has built on the next, has built on the next, and this is my fifth novel. And hopefully, you're right; it has the potential to reach a larger audience. Yeah, I mean, do, okay. Do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever find yourself thinking, like, my God, five? When, when's it going to break through? <laughs> is that something? That, but I mean, because to, to stay productive uh, and to you know take care of practical considerations of life, pay the rent, pay the bills. You're doing this. I know you teach, um, so that takes care of some of that. But I think for a lot of writers. For most people who do this, you know, however realistic you are about the terrain, uh, we do hope, like, God, it would be nice to at least make some money from this. Ideally, you'd be making your full living from it eventually. Is that on your mind? Is it fall? Is that how you are you, th are you ever thinking about that as you sit down to write? You if to I take 
that sort of long view, I would malfunction. Like okay. I'm, I'm the sort of consciousness in which I need to stay tuned on the tasks right in front of me. Otherwise, my narcissism will spin out of control and I'll relapse and get divorced. Do you ever? <laughs> you know, that's, like, that's what I'm trying not to do is yes. relapse and, and get divorced. Have you ever come close to relapsing? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, when I first got clean, I was clean for 13 months and relapsed. Most people who do get sober wind up falling off the wagon. I think it happens once or twice. Yeah. And I, what was weird, too, is the day that I relapsed, um, nothing happened. It was just a Tuesday. I went to work and went out for lunch and started drinking beers, blacked out, woke up the next morning with a broken nose, have no idea what happened. Damn. So it was like, at least it wasn't like a fun relapse. Right. You know, and I'm like straightening out my own nose. What did you do? I don't know. I mean, no, but I mean, what did you do when you woke up and looked at yourself in the mirror? What did I do? Well, the first sick junkie thing that went through my head was, did I get away with it? Meaning, if nobody else knows... Maybe it didn't happen. Right. The age old did the tree fall right. in the forest, Brad. <laughs> it works if a for junk, alcoholics. If too. a junkie falls outside of a bar and there's no one there to see it. <laughs> so, you know, I had that kind of toxic thought. And then, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was, you know, was standing there with the Gatorade. It's like, she knew that she was going to have to take care of me a little bit because I was going to feel so terrible about what had happened. Yeah. I mean, shame is one thing. But there's the whole another like five alarm shame that you can feel on a on a relapse, um, and that sent me right back to to my sobriety. So I think I was lucky in the standpoint that some people would relapse and go, "This is sort of rad. I'm gonna go down this rabbit hole." Um, and for me, it was one day was enough. Yeah. Maybe the the broken nose was a was a good sign. Well, and you know you've <laughs> been through some uh, you've been through some rehabilitation prior to that I have. you have some of the equipment like uh, psychologically support wise right you sort of knew what you had a, maybe a vocabulary for what had happened that you might not previously have had well no i think there's just that masochistic voice in the back of your head that just says what if you're fine now what if you're fine what if you're fine what if you can do it on your own and that's a pleasant idea. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just going to test drive this and see what happens. And, uh -huh. you know, I uh, crash the car. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it. I do. That's it. It's like an allergy. It is very much like an allergy. Okay. So the approach that you have to take as a person who is sober um, day by day, one day, I mean, that's the old adage, right? Yeah. I mean, that axiom, I think, works in lots of walks of life, but certainly for an artist who is interested in keeping her attention on the art. Right. You know, thinking if you can keep your attention on the things that you can actually control, right. which is the quality of the work, that bodes well for a long career. Yeah. If you start thinking about, well, how come I didn't get a review over here? Or how come this person is selling more books than me? Wham, wham, wham. I mean, you're going to go down a, a wormhole that is just going to be filled with pollutants. Worms. <laughs> and wasps <laughs> and wasps like in my garage uh i haven't seen the wasp in a while no i don't think so i think he went outside again okay so i mean i, I don't i don't want to make light of uh heavy stuff but i mean there's a little room for humor here because you know you go through all this you get sober you do that hard work but the, some of the things that you learn and then also some of i think and tell me correct me if i'm wrong but some of the impulses 
that might drive a person who struggles with addiction can potentially kind of serve you well when it comes to writing in terms of discipline, like needing that writing fix? Is it, is there, are there any similarities between needing a writing fix and say needing a drink? For sure. There, there are a couple things that I took away from a junkie's life that I use as tools all the time. And the first being that it takes a really dedicated, dedicated spirit to like be a good junkie. Be a good drunkard. Like you have, you spend all these times like getting supplies, all the time being high or drunk, and then all the time recovering. Yeah, which is like it's a commitment. Eighteen hours a day, something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, right. The, the decathlon um, of that sort of lifestyle. So if you are able to holster that sort of tunnel vision yeah. and use it in a productive way. It can be an artist's best friend because I work harder than most people do. Not like I'm not smarter than any, everybody else, but when most people are stopping for the day, I'm I'm still going. You're still you, going. You think about you know sober writers like you know Michelle T or or Bucky Sinister. These are people who write a lot too because they they're able to use that tunnel vision to their advantage. So what had been a liability in our past suddenly becomes this ultimate currency for us to play toward um, on the page or in our career we can use this kind of 24 7 work ethic to you know produce as much art as we possibly can well and you know the, the, like you don't want to get into like hackney hackneyed cliches or whatever but there are people who say like i write to save my own life mm -hmm. uh i think there can be some truth to that i feel like and i feel like to lesser and greater extents for people who do this there are people who write wonderful books uh for whom writing is not nearly as critical to their continued existence uh, on the planet. But I feel like there are some people who without it would die. <laughs> well, it, it does, you know, if it is a, a true passion, I mean, it, it gives you this, this purpose to get up every day and, and do something that you think is, is positive. And the other thing that the tool that I use a lot that I kind of got through the rehab process is that someone said to me, um, what other people think of you is none of your business. And that is very helpful when like everybody on the internet wants to tell you all the things that you're doing wrong. And I know lots of authors who take that stuff very personally and I don't care. And I'm able to just like, you really, truly don't care. I truly don't. Do you care. read your own reviews? I read some of them. The good ones. <laughs> well, I don't cherry pick them. Like I'll, I, if I, if I click on one, however, it's going to go, however it's going to go. Yeah. I don't necessarily seek them out. I think by five books into it, um, Does Leota tell you? She reads. She reads she them. She reads them. Yeah. She said, honey, read this one. Yeah, go ahead over here. <laughs> you'll, you'll dig this one. I don't know. I, I know what I'm trying to do at this point. You know, it's like I'll find people who dig it, and there will be people that, that won't dig it. And I'm, I'm not really that worried about it. And then uh, what about social media? Because a lot of the chatter that you're talking about happens there. This new book deals with a lot of the way that we live now and the way that we live online now and the way that we interact. Sure. Uh, as human beings. You know, like so many of my relationships are almost exclusively cyber. Right. You know, I'm uh, like the, let, let me put it to you this way. The ratio of interactions that I have with a person IRL versus the number of interactions I have with a person, even a person I know like you. Right. Like we'll sit down in the same room and hang out once a year, right. maybe because we, you know, we live in different towns and we cross paths at something literary or you come to do this show. Everything else is on Twitter or we shoot each other an email that's the world. But what's cool about it is that when we do get a chance to see each other in person, it feels as though we were bullshitting 
you know, last week at the cafe. Right. You know, like I had a, did a reading last night at Skylight and Rob Roberge and Todd Goldberg and Ben Laurie and Carolina, whose name I can never pronounce right. Vitslaviak. Vitslaviak. Thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, these are people that I, I've never met 10 times, yeah. but they're my really good friends. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing about um, social media. So the, the book, All This Life, some people are, are kind of talking about it in a way that it's this um, indictment of social media. But I think if I've done my job right, it's it's both a love letter and an indictment. The, the, it's the, the book is showing both sides of the argument and is leaving the space for then the reader to make her own determination as she leaves the book. Can I make a projection? Let's hear it. Okay. You live in San Francisco. I do. For the time being. Okay. You thinking about leaving? I think the city is getting ready to spit us out. Yeah. It's going to, I mean, you know, it's hard to be living in a city, expensive city these days. We have a, like a one bedroom apartment with, with a pretty big closet that has a window. So that could be the baby's room. Right. But she's two now. And eventually she's going to say, why am I in a closet? Why am I in a fucking closet? <laughs> like get a job. Like, I don't understand. Um, okay. So you live in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You've written a novel that deals with social media. Yep. Dave Eggers lives in San Francisco. He wrote a novel about social media. That's true. He did. Is, is this a shot across Dave Eggers' Did bow? you read that book, The Circle? No. I never read it either. Okay. You didn't. Mm -mm. That was not a part of your, like that was not a part of an, your inspiration. It was not a part of my inspiration. But as somebody who lives in San Francisco and has like direct proximity to the technology industry, like you're mixing with these people. It's part of the air that you breathe in San right. Francisco. You've seen, you live in the Mission? I live in the Mission, but I have an, I have an office at, a, at an artist collective downtown in South Beach called the Writer's Grotto. The Grotto, okay. So like, well, I go outside of the Grotto, which is just a bunch of like slovenly authors, you know, milling about. And then it's just, you know, millionaires right. on the street everywhere, right. everywhere we look. So it's this very odd collision of what we're doing, trying to make art and what's going on outside. So you've, but you've seen... Uh, you, you've seen the city gentrify. You've seen the millionaire class kind of push out the working class. And you know, there's a lot of upheaval there. Like the rents are getting too expensive for artists to live. It's not what's, you know, it's not dissimilar to what's happening in any big city, New York, Los Angeles. You know, people get squeezed. R r rental prices and real estate prices become unreachable. Um, and, you know, it seems like somebody who lives in San Francisco would maybe have um, the best vantage to write a book that deals with social media. Not like that someone else, you know, not like someone who lives in Omaha couldn't do it too, but you know what I'm saying? Was that part of it where you like, you know what? I live here. I'm seeing this. It had to have been kind of part of the uh, genesis of the project. Well, what I started to think about was San Francisco as a frontier town. You know, when, when gold was found 1848, all this new money came in and that displacement, all that chaos happened in that century. And now we're having the same thing happen right now. Where the gold rush metaphor is apt. It is. And it, but I think what's cool, what's different about this time is it's happening in two different ecosystems, right? There's an analog gold rush and there's also this digital gold rush. What's the analog gold rush? That's just, that's our external world. Oh, right. That's us kind of walking around and what's happening inside the computer is just as much of a wild west paradigm as what's happening Outside the computer. So I wanted to write a book that dealt with both of those planes at the same time. Because that was something that I hadn't seen done before. Do you outline? I never have a plan. Okay. That's it, that, that surprises me because of the like the disparate uh, narratives 
you know what I'm saying? Tying it all together, yeah. making it all work together. That was all done kind of intuitively. It just means that it's going to take me longer to write a book than somebody who's a very fastidious outliner. outliner. Cause I'm going to take so many wrong turns along the way. But when those, when I take those wrong turns, even if I end up letting that material hit the cutting room floor, I'm still learning kernels about the characters that I can then fold into the action right. that I'm going to use going forward. But it was funny because one of my guilty pleasures is I like to go see action movies in the morning. Uh-huh. And when I saw Godzilla in 3D, of course, they were fight- Godzilla was fighting the monster on Market Street in San Francisco. And like was just, they were leveling buildings. And I was thinking to myself, this is what has to happen. Right. <laughs> like in order for ethnic families and artists to live in San Francisco, all we need to do is contact Godzilla. That's it. We just need a giant fire-breathing lizard That's to it. come in here and fuck the so place up. So if anybody knows <laughs> how to get in touch with Godzilla... San Francisco would, would like that piece of information. Well, that's the thing about it when it comes to affordable housing and when it comes to uh, a more equitable situation for people of all classes. Um, because the, here's the point. I mean, I, I, there, are people who would, there are people who would argue, well, you know, if you don't have the money, the market dictates the price of real estate. And if you can't afford it, then sorry, buddy. But I think that there's something vital lost, not just for the artist's and the police officers or whomever it is uh, who can't afford to live in the community anymore. Uh, but I think the people who have the money lose something. Like, all you're living around is a bunch of tech millionaires. Right. Become- well, you used to be able to have, you know, 30, 40, 50 options of all these various expressions that you could go see. Like, independent theater, you know, jazz, punk rock, hip-hop. Um, at, at, at clubs that are all going under. Right. So now instead of having 30 options, then you had 20. And instead of having 20, you have 10. Then you have only five. And what was happening on the fringe is what's getting squeezed out and all the mainstream stuff is is what's celebrating. So what, what, what we're losing is this the idea that we can uh, experience things that are out of our comfort zone. And that's one of the most rewarding things about being in a city. It'd be like, I don't know if this is exactly for me, but I'm going to go and give it a try. And you realize that, oh, wow, this is, could be something that really fires me up moving forward. If a, if a city becomes as homogenous as a suburb, well, what is it? Right. It, like, exactly. Something vital for the culture is just drained. Absolutely. Of a lot of its vital life force. Absolutely. And I think the challenge is that I can't. I'm, you know, I'm, who am I? I'm sitting here in a garage with a podcast. Like I'm not an expert on how to fix these <laughs> problems, but it seems to me like a big challenge. Like how do you retrofit a city with affordable housing? How do you fix it? You have to have Godzilla come through. Right. Bulldoze it. Like what, what do you do once like the ship has sailed? Well, and it's too, it's too easy to just say tech people are bad. And that's not the point. Cause no. they're the ones who are kind of building these vibrant online communities that we were just talking about. And right. I'll give you a specific example. In this, this winter, I had to have heart surgery, like a pretty serious heart surgery. What happened? I was giving my daughter a bottle on New Year's Day, 6 in the morning. Everything seems right so far, and I lost the feeling from my right shoulder to my foot. Couldn't feel anything. Um, called 911, went to the emergency room, and they told me that I had had a stroke. Jesus Christ. And then they did an MRI, and they found two lesions on my brain, and those scars were indicative of two strokes in my past. So I was probably drunk 
and had a stroke and didn't notice. How fucked up is that? Jesus. Yeah, can you imagine sitting at a dive bar, having a stroke and being like, ah! <laughs> and they just like you know poured me another. Is that whiskey. what a stroke feels like? You just lose feeling. Like I guess it can. Manifest- I heard I heard a a sound inside my right temple that sounded like a match being extinguished in water. It was so surreal, and I was utterly convinced that my life was ending. Like there was no doubt that I was dying. That's fucking terrifying. It was cra- it was terrifying, but it's about to get more terrifying. Okay. So they discover the stroke, and then they do this litany of tests to figure out what the hell's wrong. One of the tests involved me swallowing this really immense camera so they could take ultrasound images of the back of my heart. And when they did that, they found out that I was missing an entire wall in the middle of my heart. Genetically? Yep, congenital thing. Um, Everybody should have two atriums, and I just had one giant one. So what that meant was every time I have a blood clot, there's no border. It can just go right up into my brain. So they had to go into my heart and build... How do they do that? They this open wall. you up? They open no, you- they, it's all catheter. Okay. So they come in through the artery in my leg, and it's sort of like a little... Uh, it's a closed umbrella as they're f- filling it in, and then they pop the umbrella open, pull it into place, and then my tissue actually acts as the anchor to keep it into place. It's amazing. It's crazy what they're able to do. Because I, I spend a lot of times complaining about the healthcare system in this country. On right. this show, I've had my, everyone's got their complaints about doctors and health insurance. Right. Then something like this happens, and some dude knows how to put an umbrella in your heart. Yeah, I'm not going to be the one to complain about the healthcare <laughs> system right now. <laughs> right. Um, it was pretty amazing. But what, what had happened is that about an hour before, right an hour before the surgery, my family was in the waiting room, and I was sitting in this hospital bed waiting to be wheeled in. And, you know, because I have an eight, I had an 18-month-old daughter at that point, I was convinced that I was going to die on the operating table. And she was of that age that she would have had no conscious memory of me. Right. So I, I feel like we have had all these milestones together. Like, this was your first bite of pizza. I put you in the ocean for the first time. I played the Rolling Stones for you for the first time. And she would have had no access right. to that. So that became like my, my big fear. Yeah. So I was sitting in this hospital bed waiting to be wheeled into the surgery. And I pulled out my iPhone. I put something on Twitter. It was like, I'm about to have surgery. I'm so scared. I remember this. Just whatever you believe in, just thoughts, prayers, Ouija board, do it. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't have very many Twitter followers. You know, I'm a literary writer. Who cares what I have to say, right? Yeah. 1,400, 1,500 people. Um, and the outpouring that came back was crazy. It was absolute. I was sitting in this hospital bed, you know, crying. I was, I've moved to tears with this. These people that I've never met before, like taking the time to say, you're going to be all right. You're going to be cool. And I needed to hear that so much. Right. You know, and it was it was this unique, organic, emotional experience that that moved me to tears. And we can say, like, it isn't just all like testicle kicks and cat memes. Right. We can use. Though there is a lot of that. And I like that as much as the next guy. right? (laughs) Right. But it was cool to see that when the chips were down, people really want to help each other. Yeah, and it's nice when we see those reminders and that of a, in a community like that. Yeah, no social. That's where social media is at its best. Absolutely. Um, how are you now? I'm good. Like yeah, 100, yeah. Like you 100. Can you run and do stuff? Or yeah, you, they, any they've given me 
clearance to do everything, but I think I'm still convincing my mind that I can do everything that they say I can do. Yeah. I should probably have about 10 more pounds on my frame than I do right now. Um, but I'm still kind of getting up. Like I'll, I'll work out and then there's a point that you normally push through. Mm-hmm. And right now I say, oh, I just had heart surgery. I should stop. Right. You know, so once my mind buys it, it's like when you hear athletes come back from like a knee injury, uh-huh. like they know it, it's been repaired, but their brain has to buy into that. They can go f- full speed. Yeah. Um, I still haven't bought in. Some butt into that. I can imagine that. Yeah. Medical weird. stuff is scary, man. It's very scary. But you know what I did? I did a bunch of research about the guy who invented this procedure. Obviously, it was a German guy because <laughs> Germans are fucks. Right. <laughs> 1920s, guy was in his 20s, couldn't get any funding to do this thing. He believed that he could do cardiac catheterizations. Nobody would give him any money, so he did it to himself. He ran a urinary catheter from his shoulder all the way into his heart, went up two floors in the hospital so they could take an x-ray of it to prove that he was able to, access. to do it. Yeah. And in that moment, he you know he changed the world. I feel a book could be born. This could be part of a book. But what's interesting is he ended up being a Nazi doctor uh-huh. and this disgraced person for 30, 40, 50 years of his life. I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, so is, is that a good life or is that a bad life? Well, it's like Louis uh, Celine. We were talking about Louis right. Ferdinand Celine. Absolutely. Wrote uh, what we, I think we both feel like uh, Journey to the End of the Night and Death on the Installment Plan are masterpieces no of literature, amazing books that influenced us. Uh, Celine had Nazi sympathies. He and, wrote propaganda, didn't he? Yeah, he went to jail. He also had like a traumatic brain injury in the war. He was a war hero in France in World, World War, War One, right. And, you know, then he had a, so he had, a, you know, I want to say he dealt with like a ringing sound in his brain for most of his adult life, Jeez. which would drive anybody crazy. Absolutely. So I think that had something to do with um, his temperament and who knows what else and his mental health as he proceeded in life. Or maybe he was just an asshole. I don't know. Right. But it is sort of weird when you revere somebody's artwork and then you find out this other stuff and you're trying to kind of balance those two things in your head. Yeah, as the story goes that he was sort of this, you know, um, ignominious rural doctor drunkard um and these foreigners kept calling his house this is like in the 50s now he's an old guy not taking the calls not taking the calls and finally they get a hold of him and they're like you won the nobel prize he was like for what oh that thing i did way back in my 20s (laughs) it had been this kind of forgotten thing in his own identity because what he had done between those things had been so humiliating yeah wait he won the nobel prize yeah celine did no, the doctor did. The the do, the Nazi doctor. Oh, the okay, okay, okay. So the Nazi doctor who invented the catheterization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Forsman. Wow, it's interesting. I've just been I've been chewing on that a lot. So yeah. is that in in one beautiful shining moment, he changed the world. Right. And then, for all intents and purposes, he was he disgusting. Went, he went dark. That could be a book. I feel like this. I feel like the experience of having this heart surgery. Something you're going to write about? I'll, I think eventually I'll definitely delve into that. I mean, right now it's it's still too fresh. I mean, right now it would be like this: Chapter One. I love everybody on the planet. <laughs> so happy to be here. You know, Dedicated to everyone. Everybody, everybody. Um, but I think eventually I'll, I'll I'll dig into that material for sure. Where where like spiritually? Where are you? I don't know. My I was my father was a minister. When I was younger. Right. We talked about that first time you were on. And he was, um, 
So sometimes when you see kind of behind the curtain, that sort of skews things a little bit. Sure. Um, I, I still, I believe that something is afoot, but I don't have any idea what that, what that might be. So you're not a churchgoer. I'm not a churchgoer, but you're, I'm ner- I'm not the person who's screaming about atheism, you know, in the cafe. In the so cafe. I'm somewhere between those two and extremes. There's, and there's, do you, do you do any reading along these lines? Is there anything you do in your life? If you don't go to church, like, do you meditate? Do you pray? Do you, I mean, were you praying in the hospital bed? I do, I do yoga as a sort of kind of moving meditation. I don't have the sort of, I can't sit still. Sit still doesn't really work for me. It's harder. So moving helps me kind of check in. How, how often? Every day. Every day. You do it on your own or you go to a class? Depends. But I've, so I've been here. So I've been doing it on just in the Airbnb I'm staying at. Uh huh. How long do you practice for? Today I did 20 minutes. Okay. Just some sun salutations. Just to wake the going. wake the body up. Wake it up. That's Absolutely. good. I love yoga. It helps. It does. I mean, like my back is a little tricky, but uh, I that's how I got started into it. And then I was like, oh, I actually feel better. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you noticed it in your head? Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like it's like an exercise. I think surfing and uh, skiing yield a similar effect. And I've thought a lot about this. And I think maybe you can get into this in other sports too. But there's something about the contact with nature and then just like the all-consumingness of them and the speed um, that like renders your brain and the chatter in your mind sort of inoperable yeah. so that when you're done with a day of skiing or you're done being in the water, just swimming in the ocean does it to me right? Um, because the waves are coming and you just sort of, I don't know, it does something great to me. And I just wind up coming out of that experience feeling similarly to like, to like when I go to a yoga class and I, like I really like twist it out of myself or whatever you want to call it, uh, I feel high. Like my joke is that it's like pot without the paranoia. Yeah, you know. Well, the nice what I like about yoga too is that it just sort of truncates all of these benign things that I would normally be worrying about. Because uh-huh. when I when I had the stroke, it was New Year's Day, but we didn't actually have the surgery until March 11th. So that was when that the first time the surgeon could fit me in. Jesus. So they said, you know, our chief task for the next two months is to keep you alive. So they put me on these crazy cocktail of blood thinners. I was going to say, no that blood clots. That was thinning it out from all these various perspectives. Um, and that was actually really freeing, too. Because all the, the thing that I would normally be worried about, I couldn't worry about things. I was worried about, I don't want to die. I'd like to be a good father. I'd like to be a good husband. And everything else just... It's clarifying. ...sloughed away. It was... I don't know that I would ever have thought about being thankful for heart surgery or thankful for have a stroke, um, but it gave me the opportunity to really examine what's important to me. Sure. And the things that didn't make that very short list, it, it, there you go. Uh-huh. It was a very interesting demarcation. Well, no, I mean, as I feel like I have like in a, in a similar vein, I feel like an enormous strange positivity and lightness uh, of being that I've felt when I've been to funerals, like super heavy funerals, losses of friends, you know, some of, some of the, some of the best times in my life in terms of how I felt relative to my connection to human beings, my clarity, right? There's no static. It was just like suddenly like, Oh, this is important. And it's very obvious. Yeah. And it feels great. (laughs) Well, you know, the other, uh, the other thing that I felt really grateful for is that I went into the hospital and was actually presented with a solution 
Because most people go into the hospital and they hear it's stage four or you have MS or it's Lou Gehrig's disease or whatever it is. So at the same time, I just felt this immense gratitude right. that they Thank could just God. say, we can fix this, man. It's going to be a scary couple of months, but we can go in there, we can fix it, and you're going to be fine. Right. And I was like, I'm going to be fine? Oh, my god! It's like you get a second lease yeah, on life. it's great. It's like you're reborn. But see, do you, and are you still riding that wave? Um, am I still riding that wave? I think the books coming out, the whole publishing process stokes that like petty narcissism that every artist has. Yeah. So that it's been weird to feel sort of pulled in, in that direction. Sure. I've, I've noticed, I've noticed that. Uh huh. Um, I don't know yet if it's something that is going to be gone forever. Cause I would, I, I liked having that. That's what I was going to say. Like, did you ever see the Judd Apatow movie with Adam Sandler called funny people? Yeah. Where he's got the life-threatening illness, and then it goes away. Right. Like he thinks he's going to die, and then the guy's like, "It went away." Right. And so suddenly you have this lease on life. And I, like one of the things that I liked about that movie, like I think it's a flawed movie, but I think there's a lot to love about it. Uh, but one of the things that I loved is that it plays with this idea that like you know epiphanies are fleeting. Like you think if you have a near death, like a true near death experience, and suddenly you get that second lease on life, that you're going to be. Uh, clear, and you're going to have a certain wisdom and a certain, uh, I don't know, like just centeredness that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. But even that is fleeting. Yeah, I don't know that that's sustainable if unless you live on like a, maybe a mountaintop in Tibet. Okay, well, but okay, but see, here's the thing. I've thought a lot about this. Uh, you have to work at it. You have to like recharge. Like you're going to have that high for a while. You know, and you're going to have that clarity that's just brought on by the the trauma or the the relief or whatever it is. Like the emotional roller coaster of that experience is going to yield an after effect that could linger. Well, do you – we both have young daughters. Do you get similar releases when it's just like you and your daughter alone for a day? Yeah. That's – as we – Ava and I have every Friday just us. Yeah. And like there's this – three-story hamster cage for kids in San Francisco called the Peekaboo Factory, which okay. sounds like a fetish bar south of the market, <laughs> but I promise it's not. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we go there every Friday morning. We go to the beach every Friday afternoon, and I don't think about anything except being with her. Right. So th- that's one of the ways that I'm able to kind of check back in. Uh-huh. When, all, when all these other things start to kind of gurgle up in my consciousness, she helps me get back to what really matters. Well, I mean, it's, but it's like the yoga, too. Like, you know, you've got to maintain. You got to go to, I mean, if you're sober, people go to meetings. If you, uh, it's not like you just, it's not like you get sober and then like, you just go, I got it. Right. You got to maintain. Well, you could say that, uh, but it's not going to work out very well exactly. for you. Exactly. Exactly. But I think like, I think it's like, and it's sort of like the, it's, there's a similar thing to tie this back into writing that you could, um, you could say that like, you know, you got to do the work every day. Yeah. It's not like you, you write a book and you publish a book and then it's like, I got it. Right. You got to sit down again. The blank page will be there. Start over. Uh, like it never ends. You know, well, it's, it's not like talent and work ethic are mutually exclusive. But if I had to pick one or the other, I would always pick work ethic over talent, especially for novelists, because it's going to require you to put your ass in the chair for three, four, five years. Um, I mean, you go to any dive bar in Hollywood right now, and everybody there could write a great novel. 
you know, if they like got their shit together and and did the work. Yeah. So as long as we're showing up, and that's why I, I think it's so important that that artists or writers specifically engineer a day to day routine that they derive pleasure from. Because you're going to hit those doldrums, right? And if you're not enjoying your process, why the hell would you finish? Right. Why would you write draft nine if you didn't like writing draft four? Mm-hmm. And don't even get anyone started about draft 15. Ugh, and that's going to be yeah. even crazy. Yeah. But if you're the sort of person who you're not writing to publish, you're writing for these micro pleasures, right? You write because Thursday was a fucking good day because I wrote a scene. And Saturday I made a really cool character discovery. And that was a really, really great day. You know, you string enough of those together, you look up in 10 months and you're like, I got 200 pages of this. This doesn't feel like work at all. Mm. You know, but if you're like white knuckling your way through it, you're not going to, you're not going to finish. And if you do finish, I always feel, I feel like I can tell when writers are white knuckling things or they're not having fun. Um, we want to be able to see that there's, there's, there's somebody who's enjoying putting their art together. And the way to enjoy it, you think, is to break it down into sort of manageable small in the moment daily achievements and to, and to revel in like these small victories i think if because writing a novel probably doesn't have an end you know like if you ever see a novelist on tour you know she hasn't got a pen in her hand while she's reading this book that's been published for four years and she's making changes <laughs> on the fly right sure so a novel is never done we'll just choose to stop working on it and move on to the next thing. And because there's no real ending, it's sort of like living in an M.C. Escher painting. Right. You know, this staircase up over here goes over here. This door leads back over here. And you don't know where you are. It's hard to get yourself oriented. But if you stop looking for the exit, right, if you just say, I'm going to live in this chaos and I'm fine with it, I think we can be okay if we just worry about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and trying to do 250 words here. 500 words here. I was just talking with someone about this the other day that I had a very nocturnal writing process for my first four books. Until, I remember. I remember talking to you about it then, but this was pre-kid. Right. But my, <laughs> my, since my daughter had been born, the only way that I could write is if I volunteered to do the laundry because we lived above a laundromat. So I'd go downstairs, put everything in the machine. I had 22 minutes and I was just dictating huge chunks of the book to Siri in my phone. And then I would email that to myself and splatter it in a word document. But what was cool about it is in 22 minutes, there was no time to be self-conscious. There was no time to like, you know, ponder the great mysteries of the world. Like there was just, there was no foreplay. You just like, just to mix my metaphors, (laughs) you just have to like get it and go. And it was, I think you can feel it in the book. The book sounds a little bit different. I think my immediacy translated into the character's immediacy. Well, something vocal, something about vocalizing. I mean, it's not easy to do, and I think you obviously have to refine in editing. But it seems to me like the best writing on the page, the writing that I respond to most of all, and I could tie it back into Celine, you know, because he's this is those two books, like Journey and, and Death on the Installment Plan, are like supreme examples Absolutely. of this. Absolutely, where the language on the page carries the energy of spoken word. Yeah, but it's a it, it's a trick. Because it's way better than the way most people speak. Well, then Celine is a master of how, creating this velocity in you that you're just inhaling, inhaling pages. I mean, we, we, I think now we would use the word readable. I don't know if they use the word when, when Celine is putting stuff together. But, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's such a chief, um, uh, this exaggerated 
prose, like capital P prose. But you don't you never you don't think about Celine's writing of being like highfalutin no. or stilted because it's so it's so stripped down and basic, but it's also so beautiful and so eloquent at the same time. He's translated really well. I mean, he wrote in the French like Argo or whatever. Right. Like the the like, these are the Mannheim translations, right? Yeah, right. I mean that's like I mean I revere Ralph Mannheim because I'm like man, this book was published in like Journey was published I think in '33 or somewhere around there. And you read the Mannheim translation, and it feels like it's not even like a day old. Yeah. You know, like it's, there's an, it's, it doesn't feel dated at all. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. The, um, the, well, the other thing about All This Life, speaking about dating books, is that in my previous novels, I've intentionally never really mentioned technology. Like maybe like you had a cell phone. Right. Or they were texting. Yeah. Um, but nothing that just deals ostensibly with technology because I was always worried about how it was going to age. I was listening to a lot of hip hop when I was writing all this life and thought I was going to try a completely different technique this time, which was I was going to write a book that was intentionally not going to age well. So just to like, cause you know, MCs are always just talking about pop references, things that are going on like right now in the news. And then you hear a record three years later and you're like, I don't know who that person is. Yeah. And with this novel, I just said to myself, I don't care how it ages. I'm going to put it out there capturing San Francisco in 2014, 2015, and I'm just going to let it be this time capsule. And there's sure. a whole there's a whole part of the book talking about Google Glass, you know that that wearable <laughs> face computer <R>. I. <laughs> thing. And it's already done. It's done. It's crazy. Yeah. I, mean, I thought I would at least have like six months, but it, the book came out on Tuesday, so I had three days. I guess. There's a, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's done, man. That thing never. I felt like that was doomed from the start. Well, it was in San Francisco. I don't know if it was happening in L.A. too. People that were wearing Google Glass in bars were getting beat up. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. They were called glass holes. <laughs> and people were just, you know, have a shot of whiskey and punch you in the face for wearing Google Glass. You know, I'm not a violent person. But you would punch somebody I in the face? I sort of support that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have no problem with punching somebody in the face for various reasons. <laughs> but Google Glass would be one that I don't like. Here the wasp is yeah, back. The wasp is just buzzing us right now. He just did like a figure eight around our heads. Um five novels in, right? Yeah, this is the fifth. Okay. So do you like if you are asked to look at your body of work, do you see a through line? Is there like what are the concerns of your fiction? Is it all of a piece? Like do you look at it as one big project? Is each one very distinct from the next? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like what are your fixations when you analyze your own body of work? I think there's always uh, a stable of preoccupations for every artist. I mean, you know, David Lynch has made the same movie five or six times. It's a really good movie. Yeah. You know, I'll keep seeing it if <laughs> right. he makes it five or six more times. Um, I'm interested in people that should be nicer to themselves but don't know how. I'm interested in people who would say that they love somebody else and yet their behavior completely belies um, those assertions. Self-destruction. I'm interested in self-destruction. Self-deception. I'm also interested in um, this idea that no matter who you're talking to, you know, it could be somebody, you know, withdrawing from opiates um, who would say, I'm going to do right by myself today. Like today is the day I finally decide to get my shit together. And he means it so much as the words are coming out of his mouth, right? And two hours later, four hours later, five hours later, he, he completely debases himself. Right. I love those sorts of dissonances or I love those sorts of um, 
kind of existential contradictions because that that's what makes us interesting you know i mean i think if if humans are ever consistent about anything it's being inconsistent you know and how do we actually capture that on the page um that's very difficult for us yeah um so i'm always trying to come at that from various vantage points i think that's why i like ensemble storytelling so much because i can kind of use one character to talk about one thing that i might be struggling with and use another character to talk about another thing that i'm struggling with so i can have this conversation with myself and then hopefully elevate it so it isn't just something that i'm concerned about but it might be something that touches this person in detroit and this person in georgia wherever they happen to be living at the time that they can pick up this you know stupid artifact and i can make them feel something right at the end of the day that's all i want to do is to make somebody i'll never meet feel something and on page 37 maybe i want to make them laugh and on page 67 maybe i want to break their heart but that's those sorts of oscillations are i think are necessary in a literary work like it can't be this monochromatic experience like celine wrote these incredibly stark grim books and they're hilarious they're hilarious and they have a lot of humanity in them absolutely you know there's a lot of heart yeah and like there's a lot of anti-war sentiment in journey especially but Um, maybe that that word that should interest all of us is is empathy you know i mean i think a lot of various artistic expressions can get at emotion but writing uh, writing fiction is unique in the sense that it allows you to occupy a consciousness that's not your own like you can get embedded in a logic system you know in a past in a decision making mechanism that that doesn't agree with you like if that person's moral compass doesn't line up with your moral compass that distance between those two things can be this really really electric experience and that's unique to fiction and that's one of the things that i that i love to play with is this idea about being what would it be like to be a 15 year old boy in 2015 right now i don't know what that's like i don't know what it's like to be a 60 year old woman but i'm going to portray one how much research just into it i don't imagine i don't really do research yeah. with these books um, I don't really feel like I need to. Do you have like a 15-year-old kid read the 15-year-old sections to, to see if you got it on the nose? Or? I had a day trader read. There's, there's a futures commodity guy, and I just wanted to make sure that it passed the sniff test. Yeah. I mean, because like, it's like you've been 15 before. I've been 15. I've been 15. So you have some access to that experience. And imaginatively, uh, you know, I think it's not impossible that one might be able to render that with some accuracy. Right. But when you talk about this book, you know, and how you purposefully set out to write a book that you didn't care how it would age, that means you're getting into specifics of technology and culture and right. like, things that are going to be uh, here today, gone tomorrow. And, you know, I don't know exactly know what the world is like for a 15 year old. I can imagine they're on what Snapchat, like what are they, what do the kids use? Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) We're two old guys in a garage. (laughs) We don't know anything, but I mean, you know, it's, it happens to the best of us and it's, it's, it's hard to keep up. I mean, every day it's like, there's a new social network and like certain kids and certain cultures use X and other kids and other cultures use Y and certain kids, it can be uh, either cultural. It can be regional. Right. You know, I think certain kids in the South might use something that kids in the North don't or whatever it is, you know. And so it's a lot to keep track of. Well, one of the things that the book is interested in is this idea that are we using kind of our our analog identities and our digital identities to add up to the most 
to the happiest life that we're capable of living. I don't think the book is not supposed to answer those questions. It's I'm just to supposed to them. put them yeah. and, and see what we see. One of the things that I had never seen before on the page rendered in realism, we'd seen it in, in sci-fi, um, but not in kind of capital R realism, is a, like a detective story inside the computer. So this book, for the first half, is you know a literary novel, and then it turns into a thriller halfway through when this 15-year-old boy goes missing but he's inside his computer like he is communicating with his dad on twitter but his dad doesn't know where he is in in real life so it becomes this cat and mouse or this detective story that's being played out inside the computer so that action or that metaphor allowed me to explore this um, there are these subset of questions from from various angles. Do you, uh, do you like in your reading life? Do you read detective? Do you read like pop oilers and sci-fi and stuff like that? Is it something you're interested in? I taught a class last fall on noir, so I did a lot of noirish reading. Um, so maybe that that pacing. I like the pacing of of those sorts of stories. So maybe that was in in the, in the back of my head. Yeah, I always just feel like. It's my job on a project-by-project basis to be challenging myself to be the most aggressive storyteller I can. And I guess what that means is, like, ambition is probably a better word. Like, I couldn't have written all this life first because I've learned all these things along the way. That's not to, you know, besmirch. I like my other books. My other books are good. But this is something that, like, my... My high wire was was strung up in a, in a, in a more um, glorious altitude this time. Like I was really like I, I was I was willing to fail this time. What are some of the things that you've learned from book to book? Like I mean, I know it's like I don't want to put you on the spot, but like you go from book one to book five. By the time you get to book five, you've learned some things. And I imagine there, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I imagine creatively there's small little choices that you make that had you not been through the experiences of books one through four, you wouldn't have known to make. Is there something more explicit than that that you can point to that you've learned that you were able to apply in this book? I think a good example, and this is going to sound obvious, but it, it, it just kind of came to me over, the, over the, last, um, the last narrative I was putting together, is that plot is actually 50% content and 50% structure. Meaning that you can have the best plot imaginable but if you don't chop it up correctly it won't it won't fly so i had never really thought about that kind of connection between the architecture of a novel and how it's going to affect the series of events yeah um, that's something that was really really fun for me to play with too because with seven different characters there are two like big risks that you're running you know one would be that a reader is going to like a, a couple characters a lot and she's not going to want to spend any time with the other ones. Uh-huh. And then the other one is that you have to establish these lives in kind of concrete and meaningful ways. And that can t- that might take so much time that your pacing flags. And so why does your reader will turn to the next chapter and go, oh, God, he's introducing another character. Here we go. How do we keep track of all these characters? Yeah. It who, becomes who? this. this it, it can be this cumbersome thing. But if you're thinking about plot – not just about content, but also about form, you, you approach it from this very nimble angle, right? Where you're saying like, oh, I can do both of these things at the same time. It can be plot 
and character simultaneously. When I teach this to my graduate students, I, I call it characterization, plot and character together. Like maybe when we're first starting out as writers, it's, it's important to have these sovereign buckets, right? This is a plot over here. This is characterization over here. But as we get more elegant in our abilities on the page, it shouldn't be a, a reader sh or should not be able to tell the difference if this is a characterization detail or plotting detail. So like a guy is standing in a liquor store about to buy a pack of cigarettes. Another guy walks through the front door and puts a, a gun to the clerk's head. Give me the money. And in that moment, that character has to make a decision. What's he going to do? Is he a hero? Does he fancy himself a hero? Is he going to be more pragmatic? Is pragmatic a euphemism for coward? How are we going to approach this moment? The reader is never going to know if that is a moment of plot. It is a moment of heightened action, certainly. And yet, because that character has to make a very, very important decision, the character reveal is going to be immense. So I've, I was thinking about characterization a lot as I was writing All This Life. How can I make sure that the, the plot is constantly moving forward, and yet I'm always revealing new aspects of the character's information? Then I think that's, that adjective is huge, and, like, and new information. And teaching helps you clarify and crystallize your own ideas about your writing oh man i love teaching i mean i know a lot of reluctant professors <laughs> yeah sure um but i don't i don't fall in that camp like i super dig it um, being involved with graduate students who are usually you know in the middle of their first book which is a very lonely place to be um, i like to be a part of that dialogue i can always feel their enthusiasm and their enthusiasm inspires me to do my work and they're always asking me questions that I don't know the answer to. And when I think I do know the answer to and I answer them, I always leave there being like, wait, is that true? Um, hmm, maybe I don't believe that. Right. So they make me look at my answers and be like, well, am I, am I copping out? You know, so I think that's important that we're always kind of constantly evaluating what's important to us on the page because it's going to change. Well, and if you're like, I, I, I want to stop you because I think it's you just you, you're striking on an interesting point and from a teaching perspective, especially somebody who teaches writing, somebody who's good with language, you know, when you're in that role and you're in front of the room and you're the professor, somebody asks you a question, you're predisposed to give an answer. Mm -hmm. That's your job. But if you're an honest broker, you kind of ask yourself like, wait a minute, do I even believe my own answer? Like, do I actually know? Like, sometimes it's good to say like, you know what? I'm not sure. Well, and the, the cool and frustrating thing about making art is that there are no right answers. Yeah. You know, if anybody tells you like, Oh, if you do this series of bullet points, you're going to write a, 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 a bestseller. Like they're selling you something. Like, run oil. the, run the other direction. Yeah. You know, what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do in a classroom is find that person's imagination. Like, how are you trying to communicate to your audience? The first night of every semester, I make them write a literary manifesto. Like, how are you trying to actively communicate to your audience? And they hand these things in, and it, it's amazing. You know, it's always like, I want to smash the fucking kneecaps of the oppressors. <laughs> and, like, it's a total call to arms, you know? Yeah. And so I say, like, okay, this is how I'm going to read this person's work this semester. So you're, you're asking them to give you kind of a map to help you empathize with them creatively. I'm asking them to say... This is how I think I want to communicate with my audience. And my job is to help them cultivate that and to make it 
the best possible way of disseminating that information that it that That's possibly cool. can be. But rather than trying to push them in a direction, like do it like Josh wants to do it. I don't believe in prescriptive um, feedback like that. Like I think they're there because they want somebody to help them chisel out their imagination. It's already it's already in there, right? But how do we use point of view, character, setting, all of these static things? How do we use all those things to help that imagination tell a story that only it can tell? Yeah. That's a empathy. Like it's editorial empathy or whatever it is. It's a different mode to be in than to be the writer. So I mean, to get back to your initial question, like I tell them I don't know the answers all the time because I'm not trying to sell them anything. Like I, I approach it from the standpoint of like I like books. <laughs> you like books. I'll tell you what I think about this. If you think it's going to help you, great. If you want to disregard my feedback, that's that's your opinion too. Yeah. You're like a tour guide. Tour guide. Absolutely. <laughs> Last night at uh, my reading, I gave my editor a bathrobe that had his name stitched on it. it said So it said Mr. Smetanka right here. And then Dan, I gave, Dan Smetanka. Dan Smetanka. And then I gave myself a bathrobe that said Mrs. Smetanka because <laughs> we developed this like 1950s patriarchal thing during the editorial process. So maybe I'll just start wearing my bathrobe. To class, very Hefner, right? Yeah, that yeah. would like that would chisel it down a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you're talking about maybe possibly leaving San Francisco, still still teaching in San Francisco, but just like going out to the burbs. Or We're leave? not sure yet. Not I sure. Mean, it just feels like you know, cities are cities are moving targets and they're constantly evolving. And for tw- I moved to San Francisco when I was 17. Um, I'm 39 now, and we've had a good run and. Unfortunately, I think I'm going to be priced out. Yeah, you know, and it's you would stay otherwise. I would stay otherwise, and that's my that's my city. Like I write books about that town. You know, I don't want to go anywhere else. Yeah, um, but my loyalty isn't to me anymore. My loyalty is to my daughter. Sure, and I can't keep her in the closet forever. We got to free the kid from the closet. Free the kid. <laughs> I know, it, it, but it's it's very weird. You know, we, we talk about where we would go. We have this conversation all the time. It, it, but I don't understand. Like, I, I literally don't know where we would go. I know. I have that same, it's like, you know. And there's tough. always, and maybe this is an SF thing, but we always have the, well, the reluctant Portland conversation. Yeah, no. You I know, mean, it's like, like Portland, Seattle. Portland? Maybe Denver. And it always <laughs> is with a question mark. Portland? Because we don't no, believe it. You know, no disrespect to Portlanders because it's a great city. But I love it, Portland. Yeah. I just, it's like, you know, and you get attached. Like, I like Los Angeles. I right. like living here. I don't want to leave. Right. But I got to make it work. And it's hard to make it work. And so I think a lot of writers, especially those living in like the bigger cities where it's more expensive, are faced with that unless they're very fortunate. And um, it pisses me off a little. But it's also like, you know, you can't beat your head against the wall too much at some point you just got to accept reality and then right. make, the, make the best decisions you can for your family yeah i mean my good friends eric and eliza obanoff who run two dollar radio you know lived in brooklyn and then they moved to columbus ohio so they can lower their cost of living run a publishing company have a couple kids and gasp make movies a house you know you know it's it's, it's amazing like we we talk about that too like what, what would be our version of columbus we just don't have a good answer that question yet well tbd but you guys would leave la i don't know who knows man we're about to have a second kid so we're here for at least like the next several i'd say at least another year okay we'll reassess 
we got to, you know, our lease runs out. But I mean, but would it be outside of California? I don't know. Okay, anything? I don't know. Portland? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Portland, Seattle, Denver. I don't know. New Mexico, Austin. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you start getting into, then you start parsing it for weather. Like California is kind of, you know, it's Eden, man. Like it's hard to beat, and so you start to go, oh God, we're gonna be someplace that's not as cool you know because yes and that's no disrespect but it's just like oh it's like it's sunny every day so we would have to actually deal with winter and stupid conversations like that but they can actually like affect you you right. know like san francisco probably the most beautiful city in america hard to beat well even coming down from la to la like the i'm having like weather shock right now like i this morning i had like a 90 minute nosebleed because it's so dry here <laughs> right. i was like oh, i haven't done coke in so long <laughs> what's going on this morning <laughs> But like San Franciscans, we get upset if it's above 75 degrees, and then we get upset if it's below 55 degrees. So like we have got our target aggregate. It's and beautiful. That's, that's all we're comfortable with. I like that pocket. It's good. We're spoiled. It's up there. Yeah, but it's, it's going to be weird to feel. I think you want to, if you're going to leave a place that you live, you, you would like it to be on your own terms. Right. Um, and when it's not on your own terms, that makes you mad. Yeah. And I think some of that seethingness is is certainly in this book you know because there are certain there are things about san francisco that i still absolutely cherish and then part of the evolution that i'm very resistant to and it's not san francisco's fault it's my fault and either i am on board and i'll stick around or i'm going to move someplace else all right who knows and you're going to keep writing Maybe we'll all end up living on the same block with Eric and Eliza Obanoff in Columbus. In Columbus. We'll form an intentional community. Eric, Eliza, if you're listening, we're coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> I went, when I went through uh, the Midwest on tour a couple years ago, I stayed with them, and it was a Halloween night. And we were sitting there having dinner together, and the kids, they've got two, two kids, and the, the, the older one is this girl named Rio. And Rio goes, oh, can we, can we go trick-or-treating? And Eric was like, yeah. And then Rio hopped up, got her brother, and then they just left. And, like, Eric and Eliza were, like, totally comfortable with that. And I was like, well, <laughs> but your kid, your kid left. And they're like, oh, they're fine. And they just went down the block. It was beautiful. I couldn't do that. That's how I grew up. I couldn't do that with my – what city did you grow up in? I grew up in Indiana, in okay. Wisconsin. You just went outside. I don't understand. Well, that. I know. I don't understand it either. <laughs> As a parent, like, my daughter can't go outside. You know, like, it's like, hey, i got to be with you, but – it's a different place. So maybe, yeah. you know, maybe maybe there's something out there, like a simpler way of being um, that, you know, doesn't have some of the things that you have in San Francisco or Los Angeles, but it gives you things that you don't have here. You know, it's a give and a take. Absolutely. Um, well, I congratulate you on this book, man. And I'm always impressed by your output. And it's always great to get a chance to visit with you. And I wish you the very best. I love talking shop with you, Brad Leslie. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys. There you go. That's Joshua Moore. Great talking with him, always. Go get his novel. It's called All This Life. It's available now from Soft Skull. You can find him on the internet at joshuamore.net and on Twitter where his handle is at Joshua underscore Moore. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Get the app. Get the other people app. Sign up for premium. Support the show. That would be nice. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Um... Trying to think of what's going on. Just been, it's the same. Baby, no sleep. Hot. Baby. Work. Baby. A lot of diapers. 
feel bad about the diapers. It's like the, the you know, these things just sit in landfills for like 50,000 years. But cloth diapers? Who does cl- There are some hippies listening to this show who do cloth diapers. I commend you, but that is some fucked up business, man. I don't know how you do it. But it sort of uh, hurts me. I like to be a, c- a conscious consumer. I'm trying my best. But on this front, my best uh, is probably not good enough. Here I fail when it comes to cleaning cloth diapers. Like, what does that do to your washing machine? What do you do? Just take them out into the backyard and hose them down? It seems disgusting. Or you just throw them away? But they're cloth? Please remember that William Blake died of gallstones and that Beethoven died of dropsy after suffering pneumonia and jaundice. That's it for now. Thanks again to Joshua Moore. Go get his novel. Support this guy. He's doing the work. Thanks to you guys for listening as always. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back next week. I'm going to try to get to... uh, I'd love to get to uh, getting back to Sunday shows after the Labor Day holiday. We'll see if that happens. It's all baby contingent, life contingent, work contingent. But, uh, got some good episodes coming up, some good guests, and, uh, and some amazing monologues. I don't even, what do you call it? Is it a monologue at the end of the show, too? Monologue pre-show. What do you call this at the end? This is just me. Just This is always a little bit more desperate. <laughs> more poorly considered. I'm a little bit more drained, energy-wise. Always trying to like hang on to the end of the song so that the talking and the end of the song sort of match up, make it seem semi-professional. It's hot. I keep saying that, but when you're in a garage that's not insulated, without any ventilation at all, you've been in here for hours. And you got to shut it so that you can block out noise, try to concentrate on a podcast. It gets a little warm. I won't lie to you. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) 